Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. She retired to Windsor, where her child was to be born. There, she was joined by Queen Marguerite, who stayed to be present at the birth. Windsor Castle was the largest royal stronghold in England. There was no finer castle in the whole of Europe. The original fortress had been built by William the Conqueror in the late 11th century to protect the Thames Valley. But it had been enlarged and rebuilt by several kings since. In Isabella's time, Windsor was both a mighty castle surrounded by massive stone walls and a sumptuous palace. There were two wards within the castle walls, the lower ward, in which stood the great hall erected by Henry I, and the upper ward, where were to be found the private royal apartments and chapels in the king's house, as well as a lesser hall and the king's kitchen. The upper ward was sited at the top of the escarpment on which the castle stood and commanded fine views of the surrounding countryside. As at Westminster, the royal apartments had been extensively refurbished and improved under Henry III. The Queen's lodgings, which had been rebuilt in 1256 following the destruction of an earlier range by lightning, were on the first floor and overlooked the herb gardens in the cloistered kitchen court. They featured an oriel window and a turret. The rooms were brightly decorated. Archaeological evidence shows that the stonework in the windows was painted vermilion, red ochre and black, and that there were extensive murals of biblical subjects. In Isabella's chamber there was a wall painting depicting the wise and foolish virgins, while the wainscot was painted green with gold stars. There were marble pillars, stained glass casements in the windows, ceilings of traceried wood and tiled floors. Isabella's private chapel was two-storied, her pew being on the upper gallery, which was accessed directly from her apartments. Her household worshipped below. In the lower ward was the chapel dedicated to St. Edward the Confessor, founded by Henry III in 1240. This was demolished, along with the Great Hall, in the late 15th century, when St. George's Chapel was built on the site. Henry III's chapel had a timber vault, painted to look like stone, and six columns of Purbeck marble. The west doors, with their splendid iron scrollwork, still survive in St. George's Chapel. On the altar was a silver gilt image of the Virgin Mary and another of St. George in armour. The king joined Isabella at Windsor in the middle of September, probably bringing her uncle of Evreux with him, and departed on October 25th. He didn't stay away long, but returned on October 30th, presumably expecting the birth to be imminent. However, when nothing happened, he went away again on November 9th. Three days later, 
Isabella's labour began, and he came hurrying back. At 5.40am the next morning, Monday, November 13th, 1312, which was St. Bryce's Day, the Queen gave birth to a strong, handsome, and long-looked-for son. The King was so delighted that he bestowed twenty pounds and a substantial life pension of eighty pounds per annum from London rents on the Queen's squire, John Langs, and his wife, Joan, who brought him the joyful news. Hours after the birth, following the custom whereby the Queen herself announced the birth of an heir, a triumphant Isabella had the glad tidings proclaimed in London. Isabella, by the grace of God, Queen of England, Lady of Ireland, and Duchess of Aquitaine, to our well-beloved the Mayor and Alderman and the Commonalty of London, greeting. Forasmuch as we believe that you would willingly hear good tidings of us, we do make known to you that our Lord of His grace has delivered us of a son on the thirteenth day of November, with safety to ourselves and to the child. May our Lord preserve you. Given at Windsor on the day above named. Evreux and the other French lords in his train wanted the boy to be called Louis, after St. Louis himself and the Queen's brother. But the King and the nobles overrode them, insisting that the heir be named Edward, after his father and grandfather, a decision that greatly pleased Edward's subjects, who were rejoicing jubilantly over the birth. London erupted in celebration. The mayor himself, with his aldermen, led the dancing in the street, and tons of free wine were set up so that the citizens could drink to the health of the royal mother and child. The festivities continued day and night for a week. On November 17th, the prince was baptized with much pomp in Henry III's chapel, in the presence of an august company that included Evreux and his sister, Queen Marguerite. Cardinal Arno Novelli of St. Pricia, one of the papal legates, officiated, and the child had no less than seven godfathers. Louis, Count of Evreux, the Earls of Richmond and Pembroke, Richard, Bishop of Poitiers, John Droxford, Bishop of Bath and Wells, Walter Reynolds, Bishop of Worcester, and Hugh Le Dispenser, the Elder. No godmother is recorded. Nor was Lancaster, or any of the Lord's ordainers, present. On November 24th, the proud father created his son Earl of Chester, a title he had himself borne before his accession, and which is still borne by the Prince of Wales today. The infant was also granted the counties of Flint and Chester, saving the manor of Macclesfield, which Edward had given to Isabella. And in December he was granted Knaresborough Castle, which had once been Gaveston's. It was not until December 9th that Isabella left Windsor for Isleworth, where her churching was to take place. Even then, this ceremony was further deferred until December 24th. In the case of queens, this ritual was usually an occasion of great splendour. However, the lapse of six weeks between birth and churching suggests that Isabella had not had an easy labour and that her recovery had been slow. Several chroniclers testify that the birth of the prince helped somewhat to mitigate Edward's dreadful grief for Gaveston, and it provided a known heir to the throne, for if the king had died without issue, the crown would certainly have been disputed. It also boosted public support for the king, and put a stop, for the time being, to any intent on the part of Lancaster to undermine Edward's authority. On December 20th, thanks to the continuing efforts of Evreux and the papal legates, King and Magnets agreed a final peace, whereby Gaveston's killers were humbly to beg the King's pardon and return to him all Gaveston's treasure which they had seized at Newcastle. In return, he was to grant them a free pardon. This must have tasted like gall to Edward. 
who wanted nothing better than to wreak a bloody vengeance on those who had deprived him of peers. Nevertheless, two days later, it was proclaimed that king and lords were now at peace. And on that evening, in a politic public display of reconciliation, Edward dined with Lancaster. And so, on this occasion, the dispute died down, but neither party had obtained what it had sought. The Queen's churching followed two days later, on December 24th, and immediately afterwards she and the King left for Westminster. They spent Christmas at Windsor. According to Walsingham, the season of goodwill was marred by a brief clash between the barons and the French envoys. But it's not known what gave rise to this, as the chronicler doesn't elaborate further. Peace had been proclaimed, but beneath the surface, tensions and enmity simmered, and much work needed to be done before the king and the barons could truly live in amity. As early as January 1313, cracks were appearing in the fragile facade of friendship. As Lancaster and Warwick published a list of twenty objections to the final peace. And Lancaster declared that he would not hand over Gaveston's treasure unless the king acknowledged that Gaveston was a common felon and undertook to maintain the ordinances. This led to further negotiations, with Hereford acting as a go between and Edward vehemently refusing to accede to Lancaster's demands. On January 29th, the royal family left Windsor for Westminster for further celebrations to mark the prince's birth. On February 4th, a noble pageant was staged in the Queen's honour in London by the Fishmongers Guild. They caused a boat to be fitted out in the guise of a great ship, with all manner of tackle that belongs to a ship, and it sailed through Cheapside as far as Westminster, where the fishmongers came, well-mounted and costumed very richly, and presented the ship to the Queen. The Guild members were wearing a livery of linen shot with gold and embroidered with the arms of England and France. The Mayor and Aldermen were there too, all in their ceremonial robes, as were the guilds of the Drapers, Mercers, and Vintners. After the pageant, the members of the Fishmongers' Company escorted Isabella and the Prince, with appropriate solemnity, to Eltham Palace. The Queen then travelled to Canterbury to give thanks to St Thomas for her safe delivery of a son. As mother of the heir to the throne, Isabella's position was now established and secure, and her influence with the king considerably greater. At seventeen, she was blossoming into a beautiful and charming woman. Always conscious of her status as a princess of France, she was to be diligent in promoting friendly relations between the two kingdoms until things went badly wrong far in the future. There can be no doubt that Isabella was a proud and ambitious woman, nor that she was materialistic, acquisitive, and jealous of her dignity and the benefits and privileges attached to her high status. The records show her to have been active and often successful in exercising patronage, particularly in the bestowal of grants and honours and the preferment of her servants and in obtaining for herself lands, castles, manors, towns, honours, boroughs, wardships, knights' fees, sheriffdoms, in which she had the right to appoint sheriffs, and fines paid to the chancery and exchequer. Isabella was tenacious, resolute, strong-willed, and intelligent. All that is prudent, amiable, and feminine, according to one chronicler. Others repeatedly praised her sagacity, one even calling her very wise, a phrase not often applied then to a female. Time would prove her to be a capable woman, who in a later age would have early on obtained recognition of her talents. 
We have also seen that she could be kind and thoughtful, and she was extremely generous to her servants. Isabella was healthy and energetic, too. She was forever on the move, and yet suffered no known miscarriages or stillbirths. At least four of her children survived into adulthood. This was something of a feat in an age in which approximately one-third of children die in childhood, and the average age of life expectancy for a man was thirty-five. For women, it was even less, given that many of them perished in childbirth. Whereas previous consorts had been served by no more than a hundred persons, Edward generously provided his queen with a magnificent household of about one hundred and eighty. At least seventy of these were servants of the upper ranks, and they included a physician, Master Theobald, two apothecaries, Peter of Montpellier, who had transferred from the king's service, and Master Odinier, who purchased his supplies, namely various cordials and other medicinal things for the queen's youth, from another apothecary, Thomas de Buckingham. There were also three cooks, Richard de Glamorgan, Hugh de Hoopiton, who both cooked for the household, and Robert de Snodhill, who was cook for the queen's own mouth. A chaplain, Lord Thomas Burchard, and an almoner, John de Jajou, who dispensed alms on his mistress's behalf each day and also on feast days and holy days, using a wheeled alms boat and the Queen's great silver alms dish, with the engravings of her coat of arms on the bottom, impaling the arms of England with the arms of France. Then there was the Queen's confessor, the Franciscan father, John de Chissoir. Isabella was especially kind to one of his brethren, Brother Richard. When Richard's mother died, she sent a very costly pall of cloth of gold to lay upon the body. The most important servants were the senior officers, the Queen's steward, Eubulo de Montibus, and her wardrobe-keeper, or treasurer, William de Bowden, who was answerable to the exchequer. These two were responsible for the running of the Queen's household and the supervision of expenditure, and they were assisted by the controller Hugh de Lemonster and the cofferer John de Fleet. These four officers formed the core of the Queen's Council, which dealt with legal matters and the administration of her household and estates. The Queen's wardrobe supplied these officers with ink, parchment for her household books and miscellaneous memoranda, a checkerboard for reckoning, and a pair of scales for weighing silver. All four officers were experienced administrators. In 1312, Edward II granted Montibus some manors that had been confiscated from the Templars on account of his good service to the late king and that he may the more becoming serve Queen Isabella in whose train he is by the king's command. Montibus officially retired in February 1314, but continued to be active in Isabella's service for some time after that. William de Bowden had transferred around 1308 from the king's employ to that of the queen, having been usher and wardrobe keeper to Edward when he was Prince of Wales. He served as Isabella's treasurer until at least 1316, and appears again as her controller in 1325. Hugh de Lemonster had been Edward I's Chamberlain of North Wales from 1295 to 1302. In 1313, when that king set up a separate household for Prince Edward, Hugh was appointed keeper of his wardrobe. John de Fleet, the coffrer, may perhaps be identified with three men of that name, who were employed at different times in the wardrobes of Edward I, Edward II, and Thomas of Brotherton and Edmund of Woodstock, Edward I's sons by Marguerite of France. The Queen's household was divided into several departments or offices, hall, chamber, pantry, buttery, kitchen, scullery, ewery, napery and sorcery. The office of the Marshalsea was responsible for her charges and palfreys. 
Among the lower servants were a butler, a pantler, John de Fren, a clerk of the spicery, a waferer, John Bree, a sorcerer, John de Mart, two sergeants at arms, Peter de Monte Osery and Arnold Sanks, an usher of the Queen's Hall, Thomas de Chettingdon, a marshal of the Queen's Hall, Nicholas de Chillen, a chandler called William, five messengers, John Moyne, John de Nantel, William Bale, John de Noyen, and Gaffio de Longueville, two watchmen, Richard de Burwardsley and Robert Chancellor, ten junior clerks, a smith, William de Bath, six carterers, thirty-nine grooms and harbingers, twenty-five palfreymen, a keeper of the Queen's horses and chargers, Lawrence de Bagshot, twenty-two sumptermen, porters, outriders of the Queen's carts, three keepers of the hackneys, pages, scullions, a fool called Michael, who received in arms from his mistress four shillings and fourpence, twenty-two p, for shoes and other small necessities for himself. A courier of the wardrobe, known as Little Walter, who also got a charitable grant from Isabella, and laundresses and washerwomen. Joan, the woman who laundered the Queen's napery and chapel vestments, was paid an allowance for firewood and ashes. Matilda, Isabella's personal washerwoman, received fourpence halfpenny, two p a day. Most of the Queen's other servants were paid between sevenpence, three p, and fifteen pence, seven p, a day. Plus allowances or expenses where appropriate. Even the treasurer and the physician received only fifteen pence. The mysterious William de Miley received two shillings, ten pence a day, when in court. In thirteen thirteen to fourteen, he was only there on thirty-five days, but there is no record of what he did to earn this princely sum. It was, however, sufficiently important for Isabella to take him to France in her train in thirteen thirteen. The Queen employed several household knights, including Sir John de Sully, Sir William de Sully, Sir John de Winston, and Sir William Ing, a respected lawyer who had served Edward the Second as Prince of Wales. The role of these knights was to protect the Queen. They received fees and livery allowances amounting to seven pounds eighteen shillings per annum. There were also twenty-eight squires in the Queen's household. Isabella also had a receiver who collected her revenues and many officials who administered her estates, stewards, bailiffs, castellans, and the keepers of her manors and forests. Sir Henry Green was her advocate. She later granted him the manor of Brigstock, Northamptonshire. Like the king. The Queen enjoyed the rights of purveyance, that is, the right to buy a wide selection of goods below market price, and to do this, she employed a number of purveyors, including William Atput, who was her purveyor for wine and ale. Understandably, this practice wasn't popular with merchants nor with local people, who had to pay higher prices, and it was easily open to abuse. Isabella's personal attendants numbered several high-born ladies, including Isabella de Vesey. Her principal lady in waiting, though, was the king's niece, Eleanor de Clare, the wife of Hugh le Despenser the Younger. She was a great favourite with the king. Eleanor was sufficiently important to have her own retinue, headed by her chamberlain, John de Berkhamsted. Then there was Alice Cummin, Countess of Buchan, in her own right, and the wife of Henry de Beaumont, Ida de Odingsells, the widow of John de Clinton, and Margaret de Abernethy, who may have been Welsh. These ladies received no wages or fees, but were entitled to allowances for ceremonial winter and summer robes. Since most of them had families and feudal responsibilities, they attended on the queen on a shift system. Isabella was waited on by at least eight damsels of the queen's chamber, 
who were of lesser birth. Some were the wives of male members of her household. These ladies didn't just wait on their mistress. At least two of them were sent to London to attend to business matters for her, and four had pages to assist them in their duties. Isabella's old nurse, Théophania de Saint-Pierre, was one of her damsels, and Alastair Leegrave, the king's former nurse, was another, as was Alice's daughter, Cecilia, to whom the queen once gave a gown made by John de Falaise. The tailor's wife, Joan de Falaise, was another damsel. The others were Joan Langs, the wife of the queen's squire, Joan de Villers, to whom Isabella generously gave a length of cloth of gold, and whose son, Guy, was also in the queen's service. Her daughter, Margaret de Villers, whose marriage to Odin Bjorwood, one of the queen's squires, prompted a rich gift of three hundred pounds from Isabella for their sustenance. Catherine Brovet, Mary de St. Martino, and Juliana de Nantel, who was probably the wife of the Queen's messenger. There were ten senior clerks in the Queen's household, among them Peter de Collingbourne, who sometimes doubled as the King's wardrobe keeper. There was also a writing clerk, John de Gifford, who acted as Isabella's secretary. He wrote out all her letters on parchment, probably at her dictation, then validated them by attaching her seal imprinted in red wax. The seal still survives and shows the full-length figure of the Queen standing beneath a canopy. No signature was required. This was normal procedure, and we shouldn't infer from it that Isabella was unable to write. This was a skill that was beginning to be expected of royal ladies. Eleanor of Castile had bought tablets for her daughters to write on, and there's every reason to believe that Isabella herself was fully literate. Isabella had been very well educated and was developing into a cultivated person with refined tastes. She shared with her husband a love of minstrelsy and paid for Walter Hart, one of her watchmen, to go to London during Lent to receive musical training. Together, she and Edward spent vast sums on musical entertainment. There's evidence also that the Queen was interested in art, since she owned exquisitely illuminated manuscripts in the latest taste, and three panels of Lombard work, which were presumably paintings or sculptured reliefs. The Queen owned several books, and once paid 14 shillings, 70p, for one to be made, with an extra payment to Richard the painter for some azure paint to be used in the illumination. In June 1312, her office of the chamber paid for books for the Queen's chamber when she was staying at Beverley. Her library included a great book covered in white leather concerning the deeds of Arthur and other manuscripts of the Arthurian legends. All her life, Isabella seems to have been fascinated by the chivalric legends of King Arthur. She also possessed eight romances among them tales of the Trojan War and Charlemagne, and of Emery of Narbonne, which must rival that of patient Griselda as a marriage guidance textbook for medieval wives. For when Emery beat his wife, Lady Ermengarde, for protesting at his sending their seven sons out into the world to seek their fortune, she meekly called on God to bless the arm which has so well recalled me to myself. What I said was folly. Do what you will. The inclusion of three missals, a breviary, a book of homilies, two graduals, a martyrology, and an ordinal, or service book, among these volumes, testifies to Isabella's piety. One Psalter, the Isabella Psalter, dating from 303 to 8, has been identified through its heraldic emblems as having belonged to her, and was perhaps made as a wedding gift. It has also been credibly suggested that the so-called Queen Mary's Psalter, a vividly illuminated English manuscript produced around 1310 to 20, was Isabella's too. 
It may be significant that it has many prominent illustrations of biblical queens and noblewomen. We do know, again from heraldic evidence, that Isabella owned a French apocalypse, which was perhaps given to her by her father. Isabella owned several sacred relics, including a ring made by St. Dunstan, the 10th century Archbishop of Canterbury. Every day she offered seven pence, 3p, in obligatory money or set obligations, which was redeemed by her chaplain, except on the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, when the Queen offered ten pounds ten shillings, ten pounds fifty, in gold florins. When Isabella attended Mass in one of the great cathedrals or abbeys, she usually offered four shillings and eightpence, twenty-three p, in obligatory money. For the Easter service of Tenebrae, the clerk of the Queen's Chapel acquired a large wooden figure of Judas to hold the twelve paschal candles that would be snuffed out one by one to symbolize the disciples abandoning Jesus. At this time, the chapel was adorned with embroidered altar cloths and hangings and curtains trimmed with corded ribbon and suspended by iron rings on rails, and there was a font for making holy water on the eve of Easter. Isabella gave gifts of clothing and jewellery to various churches, and in January 1312 she sent some cloth to a hermit, Brother John, who lived in Windsor Forest, so that he could make himself a chasuble. She and Edward donated a great window depicting Becket, their favourite saint, to Canterbury Cathedral. It was set up in the north transept. As we have seen, both king and queen frequently went on pilgrimage to the Shrine of Becket, and Isabella also visited the Shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham, where the Virgin Mary's milk was venerated. This shrine was especially popular with mothers-to-be and those wanting a child. The royal couple were great patrons of the Dominican order, but Isabella, in common with her aunt, Queen Marguerite, had a special affection for the Franciscans, who, by their emotive preaching, were prompting the involvement of the laity in devotional practices and attracting the interest of many important and talented people. The order, which had been active in England and increasingly successful since 1224, was inspired by the life and teachings of St. Francis of Assisi. The friars were forbidden to own property, and had to earn their living by work or begging. All Isabella's confessors were Franciscans, and among her books were several for the use of the friar's minor. The Queen was a great benefactor of the Franciscan houses at King's Lynn, Coventry, and from 1327, Newgate in London. By the 14th century, the English court was becoming a more stable institution and was expanding in size and expenditure. Although the population of the royal household fluctuated from ruler to ruler, it was usual for several hundred persons to be residing at court at any given time. Both the king and queen had their separate households and staffs. The court was a social as well as an administrative and political centre and had its own elaborate code of courtesy and etiquette. Its language at this time was Norman French, a bastardised version of the tongue spoken by the conqueror and his companions. Latin, however, was the traditional language of the government and the royal secretariats. By any standards... Edward II's court was a disorderly hotbed of jealousies, intrigues, and tensions. The chroniclers complained that it was full of ruffians, parasites, and ribbles, who spent the night in jesting, playing, and banqueting, and in other filthy and dishonourable exercises. The king was no great judge of character and employed many persons of questionable probity who became bitterly hated. Take, for example, Robert Lure, who had been ordered out by the ordainers, but who defiantly stayed on, building up a fortune by dubious methods and murdering his mistress's husband along the way. 
when arrested for trespasses, contempts and disobediences, he threatened to cut up his captors limb by limb, and in the king's presence if necessary. In 1317, Gilbert de Middleton, a household knight, gained lasting notoriety by mugging the Bishop of Durham and two cardinals as they were riding north. And in 1326, another member of the household, a felon called Roger Swinnerton, who already had a record for violent intimidation, was indicted for murder. Edward's court was essentially a masculine world, and very few women were permitted access to it. Early on in his reign, the king decreed that no member of his household, of what condition soever he be, keep a wife at court, nor elsewhere, as a follower to the court, but only such women to be there which are in chief with the king. That included the queen and her ladies, of course, and female members of the royal family. It was certainly not misogyny that dictated such a ban, for it is clear that Edward very much enjoyed the society of some women. He was probably more concerned about the onerous cost of maintaining unauthorized persons in his household. Three times a year, at Easter, Whitsuntide and Christmas, the king held court and gave a great feast at which he and the queen wore their crowns, a custom dating from Norman times. There was much revelry after these feasts, with games, theatricals and disguisings. At other times, the court was entertained by minstrels, jesters, acrobats and tumblers, while gambling was rife. Isabella and her ladies enjoyed games of chess, draughts or tables, backgammon, and at quieter times would have sat together at their embroidery, telling stories and riddles for each other's amusement, or playing charades. Isabella inherited the set of crystal and jasper chessmen that had been made for Eleanor of Castile. It is mentioned in an inventory of her goods taken at her death. The Queen also regularly partnered her husband at gambling and games of chance. Isabella shared her husband's enthusiasm for hunting and hawking, and owned eight greyhounds who each got one bone a day, falcon gentle, a bird suitable for a prince, some hawks and lanners and a tersel. There's a picture of a noblewoman hunting in Queen Mary's Psalter which, as has been noted, may well have belonged to Isabella. There were plenty of opportunities for indulging in this traditional royal sport, for most royal residences either had their own hunting parks or were situated in or near the royal forests, which were specifically reserved for the king's hunting. Medieval courts were essentially nomadic, State business and the need to have houses cleansed and freshened after a large number of people had been staying for some time meant that the royal households were kept constantly on the move. During his reign, Edward II lodged at more than 4,000 places in England. But travel in the Middle Ages could be arduous. No decent roads had been built since Roman times, those that did exist were rarely well kept, and it was easy to get lost in remote areas, for there were no signposts and very few milestones. Wise travellers hired local guides to see them to their destination. Isabella's officers paid for guides for leading the Queen on the right and best roads with her chariots on her travels throughout parts of England. An average day's journey on horseback was 20 to 30 miles. Sometimes it made more sense to go by river, with baggage being transported by barge. Boat hire was the responsibility of the office of the scullery. Most people travelled on foot, but for noble women there were three preferred forms of travel. Most ladies rode either on horseback, usually pillion behind a manservant, or in a horse-drawn litter. For the very rich, there were carriages known as charrettes, chariots, or chairs, which resembled elaborately decorated wagons and were pulled by charges, 
Some were large enough to seat the queen and her ladies. Litters and chariots were unsprung, but were well upholstered and liberally provided with cushions to buffer passengers from the jolts. In 1311 to 12, Isabella thoughtfully provided her tailor with some cloths of gold to be made into cushions for the chariot used by her ladies, and in 1318 the king's household book records a payment to one Van Ballard for pieces of flame-coloured silk and gold tissue for making cushions for the chariots of the queen and her ladies. Litters and chariots were purchased for the queen by the office of the hall. Isabella's household book records repairs to her chariots, including the fitting of an axle. And in August 1311, the payment of one hundred and twenty pounds to a foreign merchant for three black chargers to pull the queen's chariot. A bay charger costing twenty pounds was purchased as a palfrey for the person of the queen. It's clear that Isabella loved riding, and didn't always travel by litter or chariot. The queen's horses were looked after by grooms of the marshalsea, who purchased mown hay, oats, barley, horsebread, bran, horseshoes, tallow for the candles that burned in the cressets on the stable walls, saddlecloths, stable equipment, and carts. When a queen travelled. Meticulous organization and hard labor were involved, for her household and most of her movable goods, even her furniture, went with her, packed in coffers and boxes that were stacked onto carts and covered with waxed canvas to keep the rain out. Smaller items were packed in saddle bags, which were carried by sumpter horses. Isabella's household books reveal that sumpter horses frequently died in her service and had to be replaced at a cost of at least forty shillings, two pounds each. Boys rode as outriders beside the queen's baggage train to keep it safe from robbers. The queen's harbingers would ride ahead to warn the keepers of her manors and castles that she was on her way, often precipitating a frenzy of repairing and cleaning. When her servants arrived, they would unpack everything and put it in its place. If the queen needed to make an overnight stop, she would usually lodge in the guest house of an abbey. If there was insufficient room for her retinue, they would be housed in tents or wooden huts. Or might even have to sleep out in the open. Tucked away into the queen's litter or chariot would be two small barrels bound with iron, one containing wine, the other water to dilute it for her own drinking. During her frequent journeying, her almoner would distribute money to various paupers through various parts of England each day at two shillings ten p. When Isabella ventured to sea, she would have sailed in a ship with fore and stern castles, and a mast with a square sail, and been accommodated in a cabin fitted out with every comfort. But a channel crossing could last any length of time, from a few hours to a month, depending on the wind and the weather. Isabella made nine such sea crossings during her lifetime. This ends Disc Four, Queen Isabella, Disc Five. In Edward the Second's reign, there were twenty-five royal residences scattered all over the country, and within their walls, Isabella lived lavishly, thanks in part to Henry the Third's great program of improvements in the middle years of the previous century. At this period. Castles were still used primarily for defence, but palaces and manor houses were being built with only minimal fortifications. And there is evidence of a new accent on domestic architecture and comfort, and also on privacy, which was a luxury in an age of communal living. The life of a medieval household centred upon the hall, where most people lived, ate, and slept. But the wealthier had, for some time now, 
been building themselves suites of private rooms adjoining the hall, often at right angles to it. By the 13th century, most manor houses were built to an L-shaped ground plan, and brick was the most commonly used building material. Timber and thatch were also favoured. The halls in the royal residences usually had two aisles of stone pillars stretching along their length. Architecturally, these halls were built in what the Victorians called the decorated style and followed a trend set by Henry III when he began rebuilding Westminster Abbey in 1245 and embellished the older, early English style with less rigidly defined lines, frivolous floral ornament, and the introduction of the double-curved or OG arch. Halls were lofty and usually dwarfed the two-story blocks of apartments at each end. Until circa 1340, halls were heated by a fire on a central hearth, the smoke escaping through a louvre in the roof. At the end of the hall nearest the chamber block would have been a dais where the king and queen held court, seated on carved chairs beneath a canopy of estate. They also dined here. At the opposite end of the hall, there was usually a decorated screen with arched doorways set into it, and above it a galleried area where minstrels might play. Beyond was the screen's passage, which led to the kitchen's and service area. Some royal halls were centred upon courtyards, around which other ranges of lodgings were beginning to be built. Access to the courtyard was via a fortified gatehouse. Until the 13th century, English queens lived in the king's household. Separate lodgings for a queen consort were first built for Eleanor of Provence, who married Henry III in 1236, and it was she who set new standards in comfort and style. Since her day, Every queen had been allocated her own spacious suites of rooms in each royal residence. Isabella's apartments normally comprised a chamber, a bedchamber, and a chapel. What would strike us most today about these rooms would be their vibrant colour schemes and sumptuous decor. The queen's chamber usually featured a great hooded fireplace of stone or marble, in which logs were burned in winter. Smaller rooms without fireplaces were heated by charcoal braziers. Firewood and charcoal were supplied by the offices of the hall and scullery. No fires were lit after Easter Sunday, when the hearths were cleared and adorned with floral displays. Beside the fireplace was set a heavy wooden chair resembling a bishop's throne for the queen, and settles, stools or benches for her attendants, as well as a table and chests. Cushions and bench covers made by John de Falaise afforded Isabella and her ladies greater comfort. Windows, which had painted mullions and transoms and perhaps sculptured mouldings and linen curtains, were usually built into deep embrasures, with upholstered window seats. Large, Oriel windows had been introduced in many royal households during the previous century, and they made rooms lighter. Glass was still a luxury only available to the rich, and featured prominently in royal palaces. Lesser rooms, or the service quarters, merely had wooden shutters or glass panels above the shutters. The walls in the royal chambers were often brightly painted with murals, chivalric emblems or decorative borders, and were normally hung with tapestries or hangings of silk, wood, damask, or extremely costly and rare velvet, which came from Florence. The floors were laid with tiles that were often embossed with heraldic designs. It was customary for floors to be strewn with herb-scented rushes or rush mats, which were provided by the office of the hall, but Turkey carpets, which were very expensively imported from Italy, had been introduced by Eleanor of Castile in the 13th century and were used extensively by her as floor coverings. 
Carpets might also be thrown over tables or utilised as wall hangings. Isabella's household book refers to her carpets being repaired. Queen Eleanor had also embellished her apartments with jewelled plate, Venetian glass and metalwork of Damascus, which must have still been in evidence when Isabella was queen. Rooms were lighted with candles in decorative sconces or torches set into iron cressets on the walls. Oil lamps were also used. Candles might be fixed onto spikes on a metal hoop that was hoisted to the ceiling by means of a pulley. The Queen's bedchamber would be dominated by her canopied bed with its rich hangings. The canopy would have been similar to the carved canopies seen on 14th-century tombs. Beds were fitted with a rope mesh base that supported a feather mattress. Isabella's feather bed might have been covered with dimity, as Marguerite of France's was. Her pillows were stuffed with feathers and made of dyed fustian. John de Falaise made hangings of various colours and two scarlet covers for Isabella's beds. At least two of the Queen's damsels slept in her bedchamber on truckle beds that were stored beneath her own during the daytime. Her household book records payments for cloth for coverlets for their beds. The clothes for the Queen's immediate use would be hung from perches on the wall but the rest would be kept in the room known as her wardrobe, which was either downstairs or next to her bedchamber. Here, her clothes were stored in chests, presses and covers and cases of raw hide. Each of the principal rooms would have had its own privy or guardrobe built into the wall. Sanitary facilities were primitive, there was rarely any system of flushing, and an open chute discharged waste into the moat below. Rags were used as toilet paper. Sometimes clothes were hung in guardrobes, hence the name, because it was believed that the stench of human urine and excrement kept off the moths. During the 13th century, Henry III had made strenuous efforts to improve royal sanitation, one of his privy chambers was twenty feet long and was built above a deep pit that served as a sewage tank. He had white glass inserted in the windows of other privies to stop the drafts, and at Westminster, after someone had tried to assassinate him by climbing up one of the privy vents that discharged into the Thames, he had bars fixed across them all. At Woodstock, to contain the stink from the privies, Henry had double doors fitted to them. In 1234, when a new water system was installed at Westminster, it fed a guardrobe near the Lesser Hall. Prior to the Black Death of 1348-49, to 49, very little attention was generally paid by the English to hygiene. Bathing didn't become fashionable until Eleanor of Castile, popularized the practice in the 13th century. Eleanor's bath was a wooden tub lined with linen sheets, cushioned with sponges, and covered with a circular linen canopy. Following Eleanor's example, aristocratic ladies bathed fairly regularly in hot water scented with flowers or sweet herbs. Their attendants scrubbed them with sponges and used rose water for rinsing. Isabella seems also to have bathed frequently, for there are various entries in her household book mentioning the transportation by cart of tubs for the Queen's baths as she moved from place to place, and the repair of those bathtubs, which suggests that they were used quite often. There are also payments for mending the garments that the Queen wore when bathing. Water for washing was piped into the King's wardrobe at Westminster from a cistern below his and the Queen's chambers, but it did not extend to the Queen's lodgings. By 1324, Edward II had his own bathroom at Westminster with a canopied oak tub set on a slab of Reigate stone. The floor had 2,250 paving tiles and was strewn with mats, on account of the cold. Customarily, 
the royal children had baths on the eaves of the great festivals of Easter, Whitsunday, and Christmas. At most of the royal residences, the Queen's apartments included a private chapel. It is recorded that among the furnishings for her chapel, which accompanied Isabella wherever she went, were two alabaster statues, one of the Virgin and another, broken, of St. Stephen. She also had cushions and kneelers embroidered with monkeys and butterflies, a dorsal of worsted painted with the nativity scene, and a painted wall hanging showing the apocalypse. Usually the Queen had her own private gardens. In castles, these might be laid out within the bailey. In manor houses, her rooms would look out onto them. These gardens variously had lawns, fish ponds, herb beds, fruit trees, vines, aviaries, fountains and arbours, and were flanked by covered paths, pleached alleys, cloisters or iron trellises. Outdoor areas, stairways and courtyards were lit at night by lanterns. Sadly, hardly any of the rooms used by Isabella survive in their original form today, and where they do exist, any trace of their decoration or contents has long disappeared. To obtain an idea of what they might have looked like, we should look at the reconstructed royal apartments in the Tower of London or the Queen's rooms at Leeds Castle. Each royal residence had its service area, with its kitchens and scullery, a buttery, where drinks were bottled and stored, a pantry, where bread was made and kept, a ewery and a sorcery. In castles, the kitchens were often built in the bailey because of the risk of fire. In manor houses, they were frequently in a block at the opposite end of the hall to the chamber block. Food for the king and queen was on many occasions prepared in separate kitchens by their own personal cooks. Dinner, the main meal of the day, was taken between nine and ten in the morning. A lighter repast, or supper, was served around five o'clock. Trestle tables were set up in the hall and spread with linen cloths. A fanfare of trumpets heralded the arrival of the king and queen, who would emerge from their lodgings and take their places on the dais. Important guests would sit with them on the dais, above the salt cellar, according to their degree. This cellar was always placed in front of the most important person present, and only he or she could use it. There were smaller salt cellars for everyone else. The rest of the household would eat at tables set at right angles to the dais along the walls of the hall. Before the meal started, pages would enter with basins, ewers and napkins so that everyone could wash their hands. Then a Latin grace was said by one of the household chaplains. There would be another grace after the meal. Before the meal began, the nef a gold model of a ship studded with jewels which contained precious spices for flavouring the food, was brought in with much ceremony and set before the king and queen. Both Edward and Isabella owned such nefs. At the high table, the royal couple were served by squires on bended knee. The squires also carved the meats. The king and queen ate off gold and silver plates using beautifully crafted knives and spoons. Forks were rare, although Piers Gaveston had owned some for eating pears, and it is likely that Edward II did too. The royal couple would have drunk from cups and goblets of precious metal or from mazes, covered cups, that were often used for drinking toasts. On the lower tables, food was served onto bread charges, and men used their hunting knives to spear and serve it. Table manners were refined. Men and women often shared charges and cups, and it was up to the man to let his lady take the finest morsels. Several different dishes were served at each course, the choicer ones being reserved for the high table. Much of the food served was spicy, highly flavoured or smothered in sauces, 
especially in winter when most meat was salted or smoked. There was a great deal of game and many varieties of meat and fish, but few vegetables. Meat was not allowed to the devout during Lent. Judging from entries in her household book, Isabella's favorite dishes were oysters, pigeons, venison, pickerels, and pottage with beans, a kind of thick soup or stew. She particularly enjoyed cheese, and her gift of brie to Isabella de Vesey indicates that she had it sent to her from France. Bread was served at every meal. It was the staple of everyone's diet, but a more refined form would be offered to the king and queen and their guests in the form of white manchet rolls wrapped in napkins. Mustard and sauces, both savoury and sweet, were served in sauces. As much care was taken with appearance and presentation as with taste. The Flemish chronicler Jean Lebel, who visited England in 1327, was very impressed with the standard of the food at court. A variety of sweet dishes and fruits comprised the dessert course. Sugar was very expensive, but had been used in the royal kitchens since the 13th century. Honey was still used by most people as a sweetener. We know from entries in her household book that Isabella loved fruit. Eleanor of Castile had enjoyed oranges, lemons, pomegranates, dates, figs and raisins, and some of these fruits were still being imported for the royal table by Italian merchants, who, in addition, brought spices from the east. Isabella liked